Can you imagine living in a time and setting where gold is so abundant that silver is about as valuable as common stones and ordinary rocks? There was such a time in history, and it is described for us in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. I invite you to turn there with me by way of introduction this morning before we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark. Go back into Hebrew Scripture after First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter nine, beginning in verse one. We read these words, Second Chronicles chapter nine, verse one. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions. Having a very great retinue, camels that bore spices, gold in abundance, and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and their apparel, and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Look at that. She was breathless. We might use the expression today, she was blown away by what she saw and experienced. Verse 5 tells us, Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe their words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told to me. You exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are these, your servants, who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be king For the Lord your God, because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. Solomon expanded the kingdom of Israel to its greatest extent ever. Under Solomon, Israel experienced her heyday and her peak. The queen of Sheba said of Solomon that the half had not been told. He had wealth that you cannot imagine. 25 tons of gold came into the kingdom every year. He had an ivory throne overlaid with gold. All the furniture and utensils in his palace were overlaid with gold. According to 1 Kings 10.27, he had so much gold that silver was completely worthless. It was like common stones and ordinary rocks. Imagine taking a chunk of silver and skipping it across a lake because it's worthless. Or taking one and throwing it into the trees, into the forest. Under Solomon's leadership, Israel experienced the golden age. The kingdom was prosperous, broad, safe, secure, and wealthy. The pinnacle or crowning achievement of Solomon's kingdom was the temple of God. It stood high in the city of Jerusalem on on top of Mount Moriah. 
It could be seen for miles, literally. Especially when the sun was shining and glistening off the gold and other shining building materials. The building began in the spring of 966 B.C. And it took seven and a half years to complete, which meant that it was completed late in the year 959 B.C. There it stood for 373 years until God allowed the Babylonians to capture Jerusalem and to destroy the majestic and beautiful temple. At the same time, the people of Israel were carried away into captivity. Several groups had already been carried away in two previous raids on the city. One of the individuals that was carried away on one of those raids you know very well. His name was Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. However, God wasn't finished with his rebellious people. After approximately 70 years of captivity, God allowed the people to return to their land. In 538 B.C., a man by the name of Zerubbabel led the first group back, and they began to rebuild their temple and rebuild their city. This is described for us in the next book of Hebrew Scripture, Ezra chapter 3. So turn to the right past 2 Chronicles to Ezra chapter 3. Beginning in verse 8. We read now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid." This was a great time in Israel's history. They had been through a lot, captivity, the destruction of their city and temple, but now they're they're returning to their land and they're finally beginning to get things back together. However, some of the older members of the group didn't see it that way. Because we read in verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept With a loud voice, when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes, yet many shouted aloud for joy. Do you realize what's happening here? Some of the older members of the community began weeping because, not out of joy, but because this temple, they could tell by just the way they laid the foundation, this was going to be much smaller and much less glorious than Solomon's temple. It didn't have near the beauty or the splendor of the first temple. However, it wouldn't stay that way throughout its history. In approximately 19 B.C., Herod the Great 
began a reconstruction and expansion of the temple area as well as a remodeling of the temple proper. He built a series of retaining walls around the temple and Mount Moriah, and then he leveled the top of it. He did this to make the whole complex much larger. And indeed, it was much larger. The size was staggering. The temple mount or platform was more than 1,200 feet long, which is over four football fields in length, and it was over 800 feet wide. Herod expanded the temple mount to a 35-acre platform. Some of the stones at the base of Herod's Temple Mount Foundation are still in place today, right near the famous Wailing Wall or Western Wall. One of the rows includes stones that are between 11 to 14 feet thick and 45 feet long. Just to give you an idea how large a stone like that really is, consider the fact that a stone with those dimensions would weigh around 570 metric tons. And those stones aren't even on the bottom row. Our group, when we were in Israel a couple months ago, saw one of those very stones. To this day, no one knows how Herod's builders got those stones into place and how they fit together with such precision that you can't even slip a credit card between them. It is an engineering feat that is probably unequaled. As I mentioned, Herod began this reconstruction, expansion, and remodeling project around 19 B.C. That means that by the time Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem, at the end of our Lord's life and ministry, the project would have been going on almost 50 years. You can't imagine how magnificent the temple complex was by that time. It was a spectacle to behold. People traveled from all over the world just to see it. It was without a doubt one of the most impressive structures in the world. The massive stone blocks were decorated with gold ornamentation. Yet it too would be destroyed, just as Solomon's temple was. This time, it would be by the Romans. That happened in A.D. 70, but Jesus knew it was coming when he was near the end of his ministry some 40 years before it actually happened. And that is what our text is about this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, as we continue looking at Mark's Gospel and working our way through it. Mark, chapter 13. Our text this morning will only consist of the first two verses of this chapter. So please follow along with me as I read these verses for us. Mark, chapter 13, verse 1. Then as he, the he, of course, a reference to Jesus, then as Jesus went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. We are moving into a new chapter in our trek through Mark's gospel. And this chapter records for us what is known as the Olivet Discourse. The last story at the end of chapter 12 was about the widow and her two mites. We looked at that last Lord's Day. However, we know from Matthew's gospel that other events took place after that story, which Mark chose not to record. 
The final few verses of Matthew 23 record our Lord's lament over the city of Jerusalem. Because they were blindly following their religious leaders and because they would not heed the invitations of Jesus to come to him for salvation, the judgment of God was headed their way. Listen to the last three verses of Matthew chapter 23. We read these. Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you that you will see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus left the temple for this final time, it was no longer God's house because he had left it to the people of Israel. It was now just an empty shell. The people of Israel would continue their sacrifices and their rituals in that place for the next 40 years until God finally put an end to it all with his judgment through the Romans in A.D. 70. That's what Jesus was forewarning about here in Mark 13, verses 1 and 2. His warning was prompted by the action of the disciples when they pointed out the spectacular buildings among the temple complex. Notice how this chapter of Mark opens. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Then as Jesus went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and buildings are here. When I read that verse several times, it struck me as quite strange that the disciples, or one of the disciples in particular, would point out to Jesus the buildings of the temple complex. The reason that was strange to me is because it is a fact that Jesus had seen these temple buildings many, many times in his life. He had started going to the temple at the latest, at the age of 12, we know that from one of the other gospel records. So he had been going to the temple for years and years and years. He had seen everything there. So this seems somewhat strange. The disciples didn't need to point out the buildings of the temple complex because Jesus had seen them many times. And this verse tells us, tells us he was just right there. He's leaving. This leads me to believe that the disciples... We're asking Jesus a question without asking him a question. What I mean is, when they heard Jesus say from Matthew 23, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, they knew he was referring to the temple. And they knew he was saying something ominous about the temple. They didn't know that all that Jesus meant by that statement, but they knew whatever it was, it wasn't good. So I get the sense that they're basically asking Jesus for more information regarding what was involved in that statement, Lord, behold, your house is left to you desolate. They're basically saying this, Jesus, what did you mean by that statement? What are the implications of what you said? What are you saying about all these beautiful buildings? Indeed, the buildings were gorgeous. They were made of gleaming white marble, and the whole eastern wall of the large main structure was covered with gold plates that reflected the morning sun, making a spectacle that was visible for miles. 
When the sun would rise over the Mount of Olives, those gold plates would reflect its rays all over the place. The disciples could not imagine how this magnificent structure could be desolate. They heard the words, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. How could this be desolate? Knowing that they were wondering about these things, Jesus responded with verse 2. <clears throat> verse 2, And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And that is exactly what happened in A.D. 70. A Roman general by the name of Titus led his army of approximately 80,000 troops to the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. Still to this day, you can see some of the large stones that were thrown down from off the top of the temple mount because those stones are still sitting down at the bottom of the southwest corner of the temple mount. The Jewish historian Josephus was an eyewitness of the devastation. He, he described it this way in his book called Jewish War. Quote, That temple building, however, God long ago had sentenced to the flames. But now in the revolution of the time periods, the fateful day had arrived, the tenth of the month, the very day on which previously it had been burned by the king of Babylon. One of the soldiers, neither awaiting orders nor filled with horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and hoisted up by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through a golden window. When the flame arose, a scream as poignant as the tragedy went up from the Jews, now that the object which before they had guarded so closely was going to ruin. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. End quote. As Josephus said, not only was the city destroyed, not only was the temple destroyed, the people were massacred. The Roman army killed approximately 1,100,000 Jewish men, women, and children and threw their bodies over the wall. In the gospel records, we are only told about Jesus crying on two occasions. Now, he may have cried more than that, but only two times are mentioned or recorded. One of the occasions is found in John 11 when he came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. The other occasion is when he thought about this event that was going to happen to the city and people of Jerusalem. Turn over with me from Mark to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> Luke 19. This was one of those occasions where our Lord wept. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 says, Now as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Here we are given a glimpse of the great compassion of Jesus. 
His heart was broken because the Jews rejected his salvation and were going to experience judgment. They didn't want him. That's what John 1.11 says. It says he came unto his own things, neuter in the Greek, his own creation, and his own people, masculine, did not receive him. That verse in John 1 refers specifically to the Jewish people. He came unto his own things, his own creation, but his own people, if you can imagine it, his own people, the Jewish people, did not receive him. They didn't want him. You know why? One word. Religion. They were so busy with their religion that they didn't have time for Jesus himself. Besides, what he said didn't fit into all of their religious ideas and their religious traditions. I've said this before, and I'll continue to say it till the day I die. Religion damns people to an eternal hell. It is Satan's greatest masterpiece, his greatest work. It was Dave Brees who said, With the occult, Satan has trapped thousands, but with false doctrine, he has trapped millions. People get so secure in their religion that they won't respond to the truth of the gospel, especially if their religion has anything to do with the Bible, because then they assume that their religion must be right. The Jews missed their Messiah because of religion. And that broke the compassionate heart of Jesus. He wept as he thought about the judgment that was coming their way. Back up to chapter 13 for just a moment of Luke's gospel. Staying here in Luke. Chapter 13, verse 34. This is the verse we read out of Matthew's gospel. I read earlier from Matthew 23. Luke 13, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under his wings, but you were not willing. What a picture our Lord is painting with those words. I ran across an illustration of this verse in a book by Dr. Ronald Allen and his wife Beverly. Listen as I read. Quote, we have known these words from our youth, but it was only a few years ago that their full impact hit us. We live on a little farmlet and usually have a small flock of chickens among our animals. One day, one of our three Aracana hens was missing. These birds, believe it or not, lay eggs with shells of different pastel hues, green, blue, or pink. It was the blue egg hen that was gone. Sometime later, our missing hen was found parading across the front yard followed by 13 chicks. Since we had not scrubbed down the brooding room as yet, we brought the little chicks into the utility room to keep them safe for the night and put the hen back in the chicken yard. Then, after scrubbing the brooding room carefully, we put the chicks on on the fresh litter and went to bring their mother to them. But which hen was the mother? All three looked about the same to us, and we couldn't wait for a blue egg. We put one hen at a time in with the chicks. The first two hens didn't even look at the chicks. They just pecked around a bit in the litter. Then we brought in the third hen. It happened so fast we nearly missed it. 
It was as though she was a high-power vacuum cleaner and the chicks were so many particles of dust. With a flourish, she had swept all 13 under her wings, all of them, and sat there daring anyone to try to take them away again. And they close the paragraph by saying, only our urbanization keeps us from feeling the intense emotion and exquisite beauty of our Lord's words here in Luke 13, 34. That's the imagery Jesus had in mind when he said to Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Let's go back to chapter 19, and now we can appreciate the emotion of what it is saying. When Dr. Luke tells us that in verse 41, as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The interesting thing about this verse to me is the phrase, this your day. This was Jerusalem's day. This was the day spoken of all the way back in Daniel 9.25. This was the day God had marked out as the time of Jerusalem's visitation by her Messiah Prince. This was the day which could have brought peace to the people if they had accepted Jesus for who he is. This was the fulfillment of Daniel 9.25. It was also the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's why Jesus said, this was your day, day, Jerusalem. This was your day. But they missed it. They didn't want it. So what was the result? Verse 43, Jesus said this. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus said, because you missed your day, you will be destroyed. This is another reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. About 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, it happened. Listen to this description of the devastation. Shortly before the full moon in the spring of A.D. 70, Titus appeared with 80,000 troops outside the city of Jerusalem, which was bulging from pilgrims who had come to celebrate Passover. Titus attacked with Roman artillery that threw huge stones against the walls. His army surrounded the city. When anyone tried to escape from it, they were captured and crucified. As many as 500 of them were nailed to crosses every day until the forest around Jerusalem had been depleted of trees that were used for making crosses, not to mention ramps, ladders, campfires, battering rams, and other siege machines. There was an unbearable stench because of the dead bodies from battle and starvation. Before the siege was over, thousands of corpses had been thrown over the wall by the survivors within the city. Josephus recorded the devastation in his book, History of the Wars of Jews. Here's what Josephus wrote. 
The terrible famine that increased in frightfulness daily annihilated whole families of people. The terraces were full of women and children who had collapsed from hunger. The alleys were piled high with the bodies of the aged. Children and young people, swollen with lack of food, wandered around like ghosts until they fell. They were so far spent that they could no longer bury anyone, and if they did, they fell dead upon the very corpses they were burying. The misery was unspeakable. For as soon as even the shadow of anything edible appeared anywhere, a fight began over it, and the best of friends fought each other and tore from each other the most miserable trifles. No one would believe that the dying had no provisions stored away. Robbers threw themselves upon those who were drawing their last breath and ransacked their clothing. These robbers ran about reeling and staggering like mad dogs and hammered on the doors of houses like drunk men. In their despair, they often plunged into the same house two or three times in one day. Their hunger was so unbearable, they were forced to chew anything and everything. They laid hands on things that even the meanest of animals would not touch, far less eat. They had long since eaten their belts and their shoes, and even their leather jerkins were torn to shreds and chewed. Many of them fed on old hay, and there were some who collected stocks of corn and sold a small quantity of it for four attic drachmas. But why should I describe the shame and indignity that famine brought upon men, making them eat such unnatural things. Because I tell, of un- I tell of things unknown to history, whether Greek or barbarian. It is frightful to speak of it and unbelievable to hear of it. I should gladly have passed over this disaster in silence so that I might not get the reputation of recording something that must appear to posterity, posterity wholly degrading. But there were too many eyewitnesses in my time. Apart from that, my country would have little cause to be grateful to me were I to be silent about the misery which it endured at this. By August of A.D. 70, Roman soldiers had gained access to the temple where they erected their banners and began making sacrifices to their gods. Murder and plunder of the city's remnants followed at least 115,800 corpses were removed from Jerusalem in three months alone. Survivors were sold into slavery. Jerusalem was totally devastated. Persecution continued for the Jewish people after the fall of Jerusalem. In a single day, 10,000 Jewish citizens in Damascus had their throats cut. Many others died as gladiators in Roman games. All this happened because they missed their day, they refused their Messiah. They refused their king. They refused his salvation. And the end result was total destruction. What other result could there be? When an individual chooses to refuse the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation, that individual is choosing destruction. But you know the saddest part of this passage to me? It's the last phrase in verse 42 where it says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. In other words, it's too late. Too late. For so long they would not believe, now they could not believe. Let me show you this over in John 12. Turn to the next gospel record, John's gospel chapter 12. 
verse 37. John 12, 37 says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. I like the way the NIV translates this verse. It says, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Then verse 38 that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Now notice what this passage is saying. Verse 37 says they would not believe. Verse 39 says they could not believe. Do you realize that you can choose for so long that you will not believe, that your heart can grow so hard that you cannot believe? That's a common theme in Scripture, a common thought in Scripture. It's in Isaiah 6, it's in Isaiah 28, it's in Ephesians 4, verses 18 and 19, where it speaks of those who are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart, who being past feeling. They're past feeling. Totally Totally dead conscience. In Romans chapter 1, we see the same thing. In Romans 1, 21, it speaks of those whose foolish hearts were darkened. And then in verse 24, it says God gave them up. Verse 26 says God gave them up. Verse 28 says God gave them over to a debased mind. Here in John 12, it says they would not believe. Then eventually they could not believe. God will extend the truth of his son only so long that he will judicially blind those who choose not to receive him. In fact, some of the most frightening words in all of Scripture are found along this same line in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want us to close there this morning. So keep turning to the right, past Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then comes first and second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter two verse nine. Second Thessalonians two nine says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now pause there for just a moment. It's not the main point, but I want you to see from this verse that Satan can do miracles. In fact, these these terms used here in verse 9 are the exact three terms used to describe the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. Same terms. Signs, powers, wonders. The only difference is the word lying. In this case, they are lying signs Lying wonders. Verse 10 says this, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Well, why did they perish? Notice, because they did not receive the love of the truth. Not only did they not receive the truth, they didn't receive the love of the truth. They didn't want it. They don't want it. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion 
That sounds strange. Why would God do that? That they should believe the lie. Well, that sounds even stranger. Why would God do that? Verse 12, that they all might be damned. Well, this doesn't sound right. Oh, but look at the next phrase. Who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They chose not to believe the truth. They didn't love the truth. They didn't want the truth. They chose not to believe it, chose not to believe it, chose not to believe it. And eventually God says, okay, if you don't want the truth, if you don't love the truth, if you won't believe the truth, then here, believe this lie. And when you do, you will be damned. And God is totally righteous and just to do that. Why would God do that? Because this verse says you wouldn't receive the love of the truth. Instead, you'd rather have pleasure in unrighteousness. Sounds like John 3, doesn't it? This is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Do you see how dangerous it is to reject the truth of God? Do you you see how dangerous it is to reject the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see how dangerous it is to sit in church Sunday after Sunday, thinking that you're just postponing your commitment to follow the Lord Jesus. You intend to do that someday, but not now. Now you want to do what you want to do, but someday you'll do that. So you just sit, and you just think about it, and eventually you intend on doing that. Listen, there is a point of no return. I can't tell you when that is, but there is a point of of no return. If that's the choice you've made, you are in a very dangerous position. The end result is total destruction and devastation. So repent of your sin today. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Receive his forgiveness today. Don't choose not to believe because you're in a very dangerous position of getting to the point where you cannot believe. And then it's too late. Let's bow our heads together in closing this morning. As you bow your head in closing this morning, pondering what we have seen from God's Word in Mark 13, where Jesus warned that the day was coming when the temple would be utterly destroyed, not one stone left upon another, everything thrown down, and all that would remain would be a flat surface on the temple mount. That's it. And the reason Jesus made it clear, the reason was because the Jewish people missed their day. The day that God had predicted in Daniel 9, the day that God had predicted in Zechariah 9, they missed it because they didn't want it. They didn't love the truth. They loved their own religion, but not the truth. Or for some, they loved unrighteousness, but not the truth. Is that you? Take an honest look at yourself. Better yet, ask the Spirit of God to show you what your spiritual condition really is. And if you have resisted the Lord Jesus, if you have pushed away the Lord Jesus, if you have stiff-armed Him just saying, well, someday, after I do what I want to do, someday, you, you need to understand what a dangerous position you are in. And you need to to yield to the Lord Jesus Christ while there is any sensitivity 
in your heart, in your soul, any sensitivity in your conscience. Don't keep saying no. Don't keep resisting. That path leads to utter destruction. So be warned this morning and hear the warning of Scripture. Hear the warning of Jesus not to say no any longer. Father, as we close our time together this morning, these are really frightening words to think of Jesus predicting such atrocious events which came to pass exactly as he had predicted. Therefore, it reminds us that when Scripture says that judgment is coming someday, fierce judgment is coming someday, wrathful judgment is coming someday, we know it's true. And even though most people in our world ignore that or most people in our world dismiss it, most people in our world laugh at it, it it's going to happen. It will come. So may we have ears to hear and may we have hearts to receive so that we would, as, as John the Baptist said in his ministry, flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the wrath to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that especially and specifically for anyone who is here with us this morning who is not right with you, Father, who is not right with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit make sure that he or she, whoever that is, knows that very clearly, unmistakably, that he or she needs to repent, needs to let go of whatever is holding him or her back and respond to the gracious invitation of salvation uttered by the Lord Jesus so many times and repeated throughout Scripture. May they come to the Lord Jesus Christ today, in whose name we pray, amen.